You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Mapleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you to know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, two weeks ago, we concluded our study of the Gospel of Matthew, Uh, and so it was time to tackle something new, and so I decided to, I guess, go the direction of addressing the subject of deacons, uh, since that is a ministry that has not yet been implemented here at Harvest Plains Church, Uh, but I think is a very important ministry if we are to have a ministry that is patterned after God's ideal picture of the local church. And as I say that, I do want you to think about something. Uh, So the fact is that, that most people who come to church don't tend to think about its function, do they? Uh, No, they think about beauty. They think about style. They think about aesthetics. And so people, they generally take in the preaching, and they notice that, or the music. Uh, They come, they see if they like the people, or the liturgy, or the children's ministry, or, you know, something along those lines, and then that's how they make a determination of whether they're going to come back to a church or not. Uh, And then only later, after getting involved in the church, do they begin to be concerned with how decisions are made, how needs are met how the church functions together as a whole in the mission of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. Uh, And that's not to be hard on anyone. The fact is we do this with everything else in our life, right? Uh, We go to buy a car, and what are the first questions that we tend to ask? Well, is this the color that I want? Uh, What's the interior like? Is it comfortable? And then only later do we start to ask the more important questions of, so how much tread is left on the tire? And what is the condition of the engine? And how many miles are on this thing? Uh, And we know those are the most important matters because who cares what the car looks like if it's only going to fall apart three miles down the road, right? Uh, Similarly, we do the same when we look for a house, don't we? First, we notice the house on Zillow, oftentimes. Then we set up the appointment, the meeting with the realtor, we go check it out, and if we like the rooms, and if we like the design and all of that, then we get the inspection. And then we find out what's the condition of the foundation, and are there any cracks in it, and what are the shingles like, and, and, and things like these, right? And again, you know, why do we care about the style when the fact is, who cares what it looks like if after four inches of snow, your roof's going to cave in, right? But this is what we do. Uh, we do it with things all the time, uh, and we also do it with the church. We, we look at style over function. Uh, but that's why I'm excited about today, because, uh, you know, the fact is, God has given us clear blueprints when it comes to how he wants his church to function. Uh, it is a matter that he cares about uh, a great deal, and, uh, and so he's written about the kind of offices that should exist. Uh, what people should do in those offices, even the characteristics that need to mark the lives of those who serve in those respective offices. And so uh, that's what makes today kind of unique, is we start to 
we're going to fill in some things that we haven't really talked about before as we get into talking about deacons. And, uh, and, and the deacon ministry, make no mistake, is a very critical ministry. Uh, and, and maybe you're thinking, well, if it's so critical, then why don't you have a deacon ministry? Okay, fair question. Uh, and let me just tell you why. Uh, we don't have a deacon ministry because that's technically the last ministry that I believe is supposed to be implemented in any maturing church plant. Okay, now I understand uh, that maybe you see a church get planted and they have a deacon ministry as their first ministry, but I would say that's probably out of order based on what we see going on uh, in the New Testament. And for this reason, when we started Harvest Plains Church, essentially what we had was uh, myself as a church planter, we had kind of an interim elder board, uh, but then at our one-year birthday, we introduced church membership. At our second birthday, we installed uh, our very own elder team, and so now we've been functioning without deacons, and, uh, and now it's time to finally put it into place. Uh, but, but, but why do we know that this is the pattern? Why do we know it's one of those ministries that gets put in later? Well, I am certain that if you read the New Testament, particularly if you look carefully as you're going through the book of Acts, you will notice this pattern. First, there is a messenger who is sent out by a group of Christians. Obviously, that happens with Paul. He is sent out from the church in Antioch along with several others. They go from community to community, preaching the gospel and making disciples, and then behold, what happens? People come to faith in Jesus, and then all of a sudden, what you have is a church, because you have people who have placed their faith in Jesus. They then begin meeting together with the purpose of worshiping the risen Lord, as well as, as to serve one another and care for one another and live out the one another's of Scripture. Uh, so, top two priorities then, as we see things, uh, you, you go out, you make disciples, and you appoint elders. And uh, to drive this home, I would simply point you to the instruction that Paul especially gives to Titus in chapter 1 of Titus, verse 5. Paul says this, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Okay, so that, you had all these churches on the island of Crete. Uh, Paul leaves, he departs, Titus is left behind, and he says, I want you to help these churches become the kind of churches that would glorify God. In order for you to do that, in order for them to ever become uh, the ideal picture of God's church, you need to go and you need to appoint elders, Okay. So the most foundational role within the church happens to be, in terms of leadership, happens to be the role of elder or of overseer. Uh, and then the deacon role, as we'll find out, ends up being a role that's added later. And, uh, and how do we know that there are these two offices within the local church? Uh, well, let me direct your attention to two places. First, and if you have your Bibles on you, uh, just know that we're going to be turning around a little bit this morning, so you might want to have it in front of you. But first, I'd point you to Philippians 1, verse 1. And Paul opens up Philippians with this. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So, beautiful greeting. Hey, we're writing to you. 
you, you, you servants of Christ. And not only are we writing to you, but we're, we're also writing with the overseers and deacons. So two categories clearly spelled out. Next, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 3, and we are going to be in 1 Timothy 3 uh, for an extended period of time, so you can get comfortable there. But notice what happens in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, and so on and so forth. I won't go through all the uh, things that are mentioned there, but the fact is we know that this is Paul telling the church, these are the offices I want you to implement, and these are the kind of individuals that I want to fill those offices. Look at verse 8. After the qualifications is given for what an elder must be, Paul then says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, and so on. Uh, so again, those are the two offices of the church. And I would reiterate again that what is the most foundational role within the church? It is the office of overseer. And we see that even in the order that Paul lists things, order communicates something in terms of priority. Elders come first, so we know that is a more foundational office. Now, you might be thinking, what is the, you know, what's, what's going on with this word overseer? After all, why doesn't Paul say pastor? Isn't that kind of an important uh, office within the church? Uh, but we're going to deal with that in a little bit. Uh, but, but just keep it in your minds that there are different words used to refer to the one and same office of pastor. And I'll come back to that uh, in any case, for now, I just want you to see how the earliest churches clearly function with two offices and how we are to do the same today if we are ever to become a healthy, self-governing church. And uh, that really is God's hope for every church, that it would become uh, self-governing. Um, and, and in fact, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the fact is that uh, the early church had no denominational superstructure uh, that was over it. So today, depending on maybe what your experiences have been and growing up, maybe you've been part of a church that has uh, had, a, had a denominational uh, head to it, and there's been uh, a council that has informed the church as to uh, what it should teach and what it should believe. Uh, maybe there's been uh, a series of, uh, of bishops or archbishops or what have you. Uh, but the fact is, when you look at the early church, you don't have that. What you have is self-governing churches who of their own accord uh, decide to link arms with other churches in order to live out the Great Commission. Uh, and so there are times when there are tragedies that strike, right? When there are suffering saints. And Paul, of course, he's gathering an offering from many churches to bring to Jerusalem or other places in order to care for the saints. Okay, we, we also see again, messengers are sent out from Antioch, right? But we know that those messengers didn't come from Antioch. They came from a variety of locations. And so you have a whole bunch of churches linking arms uh, because they think that they, can, uh, they are better together than apart from one another. Uh, nonetheless, here's our plan this week. 
We'll think about what deacons do. Then next week, and likely the week after that, I'll explain who is qualified to serve as a deacon. Uh, But the order is definitely intentional because I firmly believe that before we can really get to the issue of who can serve as a deacon, uh, much of that, I believe, is ultimately determined by what a deacon does, specific function, especially when we think about the issue of whether or not there should be female deacons, deaconesses, uh, which I will devote a whole sermon to in a couple of weeks. Uh, But know this, that even as we look at what deacons do, It is a really challenging matter because the Bible doesn't actually have a lot to say about what deacons do. Uh, In fact, to illustrate this, consider that you really only have, altogether, four passages that speak about deacons. You know that? You have four passages. Uh, And let me list them for you. So you have two explicit texts about deacons that we, we just touched on, Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And then there is one implicit text in Acts chapter 6, and then you have one very debatable text in Romans 16. Um, But even in the explicit text, we notice this, how not much is said about function, since, as we just noticed, they focus on qualifications. And, uh, And so maybe you're thinking, well then, why are we even bothering with this message, right? If the Bible doesn't tell us uh, what deacons do, how can you even come up with enough content to have a sermon on what deacons do? Uh, so should we just throw in the towel and not with deacons? Well, no. I think there's still hope for us, but I think the best way to understand what a deacon is then is to first think about the definition of deacon. The, the title itself certainly communicates something about what deacons do. Uh, then we're going to Uh, compare the office of deacon to the office of elder. Since we know a lot about what elders do, that can teach us a lot about what deacons do, maybe by process of elimination. And then I think we get even more clarity when we do look at Acts 6, which does seem to provide a very nice example or model or template of the kind of work that deacons do. So if you're a note taker, here's my outline for you then today. Uh, First, we're going to look at the definition of deacon. Secondly, We will look at the distinctiveness of deacons. And then third, the demonstration of deacons. So first, the definition of deacon, then the distinctiveness of deacons, and then the demonstration of deacons. And, uh, you know, just, just always keep in mind when we're looking at something like this, this is kind of a nerdy subject, again, because we don't think about this a lot. Um. But just remember why we care about these things. We care about this because God really cares for his church. He, he really cares for you individually. He really cares that, that the gospel goes out and that disciples are made and that the nations are reached. And in order for us to be really fruitful in, in, in committing ourselves to these things God wants us to do, this is why we have the instructions when it comes to these offices. So beginning with this then, first the definition of deacon. The definition of deacons. So there are three words that I want you to understand are connected with the idea of deacon. First, you have uh, the nouns diakonos and uh, diakonia, which are nouns. Well, I, I said that. And then you have diakoneo, which is a verb. Uh, and generally speaking, just understand that the, that the broadest way of understanding these words is that of serving. And in, in this sense, really everybody is called to be a deacon 
because every Christian is called to serve. In fact, not only are we called to serve, but we have a really beautiful picture of serving because uh, as we are reminded in the Gospels, Jesus said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, that word for serve is diakoneo, right? So Jesus came to be deaconed, but to deacon and give his life as a ransom for many. And this obviously becomes a, a very precious and important picture for us as Christians because we are reminded that even those in positions of leadership, uh, those who possess a certain authority given to them by God, are always to use that authority with the goal uh, of serving others and with the posture of serving others. And uh, certainly Paul understood this extremely well in his own ministry, which is why when he departed from the Ephesian elders, uh, he said this, he said in Acts chapter 20, Verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set forth in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So Paul served Christ. He deaconed Christ. He served others. And we are to do the same. And this is especially highlighted as you get to those passages that speak about uh, the responsibility of Christians and the way that they use gifts and the gifts that they've been given. Uh, for example, we could think about uh, Romans uh, chapter 12, where Paul says that having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if service in our serving. And, and there what you see is not only the responsibility that we have to serve, uh, but technically we even see how there is a special gift, a spiritual gift that's given to people that, 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 that helps them to especially reflect the glory of God in their serving. There's a spiritual gift of serving. And technically, if you even wanted to separate spiritual gifts into two overarching categories, you could do so in this way by recognizing how there are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Or if you want to break them down differently, maybe you think about stage gifts or uh, behind-the-scenes gifts. But just as serve in English can carry a variety of meanings, uh, such as that one can serve a term in office, or they can serve in the military, or they can serve uh, as a waiter, or they can serve a tennis ball, uh, the same is true of the Greek. And for this reason, as we think about service, scholars have found four general meanings within the diakon word group to narrow things down. So there are a variety of pictures of serving. Uh, let me give them to you. First, we could think of uh, the picture of a waiter or a server or attendant. Uh, we see that uh, there are those who serve with the duties of serving food and drink, waiting on tables, meal service, preparation of a meal. And that's actually the most common picture that you see show up in the Bible. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. John chapter 2, uh, we know that Jesus' mother says to the servants... This is the first miracle of Jesus, right? Do whatever he tells you. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So we see that there's the servants there. Luke chapter 4, verse 39. Uh, this is taking place with Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus heals her. And then we read this, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. 
That's a waiter or a server. Uh, second definition here, then you have the idea of a domestic servant or slave with function of performing household activities for others, such as for a master. Uh, then you have the idea of service with a commissioned messenger or emissary or carrier who delivers a message or an item on behalf of another. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 would be an example of this. Uh, Paul says, and you show that we, you show, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So you have those three ideas, but then you also have the idea of agency or instrumentality. And with this, we're speaking about someone who carries out the will of another or a task on behalf of another with their full authority. And the government would technically be an example of this. Paul actually says in Romans 13 that the government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God and avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Um, so that's one example, but the office of deacon is also another example. It is an office that serves under the authority of someone else. Under the authority of who? Uh, under the authority, as we noticed earlier, of the overseer uh, and of the elders. Now, before we move on, one more thing I want you to think about uh, with the idea of deacon, which is that, is, is that there's also no definitively named deacons in the New Testament. There are no definitively named deacons in the New Testament. Uh, Paul talks about how he served Christ and the church. He deaconed, uh, but he also identifies himself as an apostle, which we know is the most foundational position in the church, which superseded all others, including the roles of overseer and deacon. Uh, similarly, Timothy is called a good servant, Diakonos in 1 Timothy 4, 6, but he was specifically called to do the work of an evangelist, which we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. Tychicus is called the beloved brother and faithful minister, again, Diakonos in the Lord. Epaphras is said to be our beloved fellow servant, but again, none of these men served in the office of deacon as a, a formal or official role. And indeed, the only person who might actually be named specifically as a deacon, who is it? It's Phoebe in Romans chapter 16. Uh, Phoebe is called a servant of the church of Cancrea. So here, there is more to lead us to believe that perhaps Phoebe was a deacon, and because it's the only place where the idea of being a servant of a local church, a specific church, is brought to bear. Um, but, but even this is not without debate because it might very well be that Phoebe is being pointed out as a person of humble, helpful service who was known for simply being a very caring person in that specific church. Uh, in any case, when you think about the office of deacon, I want you to view it in this light, how it is indeed an office of humility. It is an office of service. Uh, deacons are not struggling. Cucks, they are silent swans gracefully gliding across the waters of service with modesty, selfless love, and not self-promotion. Uh, if you're a deacon, your ministry 
pretends to be a very hidden ministry done behind the scenes. In many respects, it tends to be very easy to overlook by the outside world. And uh, as such, I love how Matt Smethurst says it in his book on deacons. He says, quote, if you want to find a qualified deacon, don't look at his garage to see how many tools he has. Don't look at his financial portfolio to see how many investments he has. Don't look at his company to see how many employees he has. Look first at his attitude, his character, his life. Is he eager to listen or is he angling to be heard? Is he humble and flexible or does he always insist on his own way? Does he covet status or does he yearn to serve? And uh, these are indeed great questions that need to be asked of any person who serves in the role of deacon because it is not a role for anybody who's going to insist on visibility, uh, people who want attention. Um, those who want such things are not fit for that work. So we looked at the definition of deacon. Now, let's take a look at the distinctiveness of deacons, the distinctiveness of deacons. And this is, like I said, now we're going to kind of go through here a little bit more in depth with 1 Timothy 3. Uh, now, like I said, we aren't told much about what deacons do, but we are Certainly told a lot about what elders or overseers do, and that's helpful because if we consider what elders do by process of elimination, I think it can help us a lot when it comes to what deacons do. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to notice first verse 2. Look there, if you're in 1 Timothy 3. There Paul says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, the obvious thing when you look at whether it's the elder list or the deacon qualification list is that, is that everyone's to be godly who serves in these roles, right? And yet, based on that verse I just read, what is one functional qualification that we notice for elders that doesn't show up among the deacon list? You notice what it is? It's the last one I mentioned. It is the ability to teach. So that is a very key difference between elders and deacons. And why is there this distinction? Well, it's because the primary responsibility of overseers is to preach, teach, and administer the Word of God. And this requires more than just you know, teaching when you are administering the word, as Paul says in Titus 1, verse 9, elders are also to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So not only do they need to have confidence in the faith, they need to have the ability to take captive various lies that are threatening the church and threatening believers' lives. Uh, they need to have the ability to dissect the true from the almost, and confront it lest people be deceived and guided away from the faith. And with that, now let's notice another statement. Paul also says that an elder must manage his own household well, and then he adds the reason. He says, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, the connection is obvious. 
any man is supposed to be leading in his home well. He is to rule, lead, and care for his own family. And if he wants to be an elder, he will never be considered as an elder if he cannot lead well in the home. Now, why is that a disqualifier? Because there is a call for elders, overseers, to lead. That's what they do. They, they lead, they rule, uh, they manage, they do all of these things. And, uh, of course, we see that as we can, we can think about the household. But like I said earlier, you also need to think about the various titles that are connected with the one and same office. So when we talk about pastors, okay, the, the word pastor, it means shepherd. So it emphasizes care for God's people, uh, personal attentiveness to God's people, uh, mending their wounds, um, you know, putting... Uh, putting their leg back in place if it's broken, all these different things. When you think about pastors being referred to as elders, it implies maturity, it implies wisdom, it implies counsel. The word in the Greek is presbyteros. And then as we think about pastors as overseer, uh, the, the reason we now, call them this is because the word episkopos is used. That might sound a bit familiar to you because uh, you've heard about the Episcopalian church. Well, the idea of episkopos, the word is overseer. So putting all this together then, here's what I want you to understand. How again, the role of deacon is not one of oversight, but of agency, of instrumentality. And by virtue of their role, deacons assist the elders in carrying out the vision of the elders. They follow the elders' marching orders. And I want to drive this home because what has happened in many churches today, uh, technically, deacons in, in, in many places function like elders. And even with that, they don't even function as good elders because they operate like a board only thinking about business, not actually thinking about teaching or shepherding individuals. Uh, so, uh, maybe you're accustomed to that. Maybe there's a board of trustees. Maybe there's some sort of board, right? But, but those who serve on the board are considered to be deacons. It actually was very popular within Baptist churches specifically. Uh, before coming back to North Dakota, my home country, I was out in Michigan for a while. Baptist churches all over the place. Uh, in fact, the church I was part of was the second oldest church in the state of Michigan. The congregation first formed in 1827. But you visit many of the Baptist churches over there, and uh, the most important position in the church, uh, and most important leadership position, happens to be the office uh, of deacon. But that is not supposed to be. And one of the things that I think we're always striving after is not only using the right labels, but also making sure we follow through on the right definitions as well. And maybe you go, well, what difference does it make? And I would just always come back to this. If God's word says it, then shouldn't we be striving to be faithful to it? And the same is true when it comes to the care of God's church. Um, and I, I'm not honestly sure what elders do in those churches that have a bunch of deacons serving in the role of elder. I don't even know if that position exists or not. Um, frankly, I didn't even grow up in, the, in, in a Baptist church. I grew up attending a Methodist church. So again, when I get back to thinking about this overarching superstructure that was laid on the church, that's what we experienced, right? And, and the, technically what you had is you had one pastor 
And that was kind of it. And that pastor was told by the denomination, okay, you're not going to be here this year. We're moving you on someplace else. The congregation could submit a request for another pastor, and somebody came in, right? But again, that's not the picture. Even as we think about elders, there's supposed to be a plurality, not just one individual. So there's to be a collective accountability and collective counsel uh, that's going on. And uh, And now for a moment, as you think about what the elders do, I mean, I I do want to point out just how clear their instructions are. Uh, There are just so many places where you can see what's expected from elders. And uh, let let me just list some of the expectations there are for elders that you'll find in the Bible. So we're told in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, that they are to lead the church of God. Uh, 1 Peter 5.2 says they are to exercise oversight, uh, they are to manage, they are to supervise. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Titus 1, verse 9, we see that they are to teach the people God's word. Ephesians 4, we learn they are to equip and prepare the saints for the work of ministry. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, that they are to especially labor in preaching and teaching. 1 Peter 5, verse 3, they are to model Christian leadership. Uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 2, Acts 20, they are to shepherd, that is, pastor the whole church. They are to feed, protect, lead, and heal. Uh, We see in Acts 15 that they are to judge doctrinal disputes. Acts 20, Titus 1, we see that they are to guard the church from false teachers. 1 Timothy 3, 5, they are to care for the church of God. Acts 20, verse 35, they are to help those within the church who are weak. James 5, they are to pray for the sick and anoint them with oil. 1 Timothy 4, they are to lay hands on certain gifted individuals for ministry, ordaining people into the ministry. And then uh, even Acts 11, 1 Peter 5, they are to handle church finances. And you go, okay, that, that certainly can't be an elder role, right? Because the, the finances for sure have to be overseen by a deacon. Well, Deacons might be involved with the finances, but at the end of the day, again, the elders, they guide the church, and so they speak into finances as well. Now, that is certainly quite a list to behold, and uh, like I said, we don't have a lot of clear instructions when it comes to deacons, but I think this list tends to be very helpful. We know this is what elders do then. This isn't what deacons do. And with that now, let's move ahead to the demonstration of deacons, the demonstration of deacons. And if you would, now I want you to turn in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 6, okay? Acts chapter 6. Now, something I want you to understand, and earlier I I, I mentioned that Acts 6 is an implicit text, it's not an explicit text, and here's why I say that. Because the word deacon is technically not used as an office. Uh, We see the verb form being used in Acts 6, and and that's it. And for this reason, we technically fall short of saying that the people we see in Acts 6 are deacons. In fact, uh, here's a label to maybe add to your vocabulary. You can think of these individuals as proto-deacons. Everybody knows what a prototype is, right? It's kind of a model of something else. Okay, that's what these deacons end up serving. And, and just understand, uh, you know, maybe another concept to add to your, your vocabulary. Think about the idea of progressive revelation. Now, the fact is that over years and years and years, the redemptive plan of God and God's guidance for his people kept being added to, Right? And so when you look at Acts 6, you're looking at the first days, the earliest days of the church. 
Well, later, things that are unclear become clear because Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is going to give the church instructions for how he wants it to be ordered. And so we see something present in Acts 6 that's a good thing, that seems to be a deacon-like ministry, but all of that's going to get fleshed out more later on in the church, as we see in 1 Timothy 3. Okay, with that, if you would, we're in Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 1. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 7 together. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, and yes, I'm probably butchering some names up here, uh, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, So we have an issue that comes up early on in the church. Uh, We notice that there are widows, people in need, who are dependent for for help upon the church. And so we've got a a cultural divide going on. You have Hebrews and you have Greeks, okay? And so it's kind of like, well, hey, are are you playing favorites here? You've got one group that seems to be getting cared for more than the others. And remember that one of the great challenges of the church as a whole has always been unity, right? Uh, we see that unity is a, is a, is a challenge. Uh, cultures clash. Uh, people have their differences. Well, these people had more than just a few differences. And so the problem is, what's going what's gonna to happen here? Okay, well, the apostles, they put their heads together and they said, we, we probably should pick some guys to really focus on this one issue of making sure that food is properly distributed to these two groups of people. And uh, four things I just want to point out here that really stand out in our text. First, I want you to understand how in doing what the apostles did, they ended up prioritizing the word, okay? They made sure that there was a word ministry focus. Uh, John Stott insightfully proposes that Acts 6 showcases a last gasp satanic boy of a three-front assault, Satan's first two attempts, persecution from the outside in Acts chapter 4, and moral corruption from within, Acts chapter 5, had utterly failed to destroy the church. And he says this, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which through essential, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach 
and so leave the church without any defenses against false doctrine. That's amazing. Perhaps you've never thought about distraction as a real threat to the church. It certainly can be. And notice what happens here then. Without downplaying the importance of caring for widows, the apostles clarify the focus of their own labors. Uh, They will devote themselves the best energy that they have to shepherding the church by means of teaching and prayer. And note the play on words here. Uh, literally, it is, not, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to deacon tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to deaconing the word. So again, they still saw their responsibility in the church very, very much one of service. And it really became a matter of the best way that we can possibly serve the church is by making sure that we, we, we give them the Word. We teach the Word. We preach the Word. Now, if you kind of read over this passage quickly, you might actually think this comes off callous. Well, hey, you know, we're a little busy preaching the Word. You guys take care of things. But they are far from calloused here. Uh, the apostles certainly do not lack concern for the welfare and, uh, of the vulnerable. Are they elevating spiritual ministry above practical ministry? Or perhaps not recognizing the latter as real ministry at all? Absolutely not. By prioritizing scripture and prayer, the apostles are choosing to stay focused on the whole church's spiritual welfare, even as they affirm the Hellenists' physical needs. So we see a word ministry that's prioritized. Secondly, I want us to notice here also how the whole congregation is involved in the selecting of these men. And notice that the 12 did not unilaterally select these men. Instead, they involved the whole church. The brothers addressed in verse 3 are the full number of the disciples summoned in verse 2. And so we do at the church... The congregation's involved with deacons. We will at some point in the near future, okay, the elders will identify people we think are uh, serving in the capacity of a deacon, and then we'll present those people before the church and to have you affirm them. Um, Now, again, this this isn't completely listed out in a real technical way as we read our Bibles, but just in this process, we're trying to say, hey, the congregation's involved with the installing of deacons. So secondly, you have the whole congregation involved. Third, also notice that there is godly character that's mandated here. According to verse 3, we notice that these individuals must be of good repute. In other words, they are to be respectable, uh, known for both character and conduct. Uh, They are to be full of the Spirit. As Christians, they are to be and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. As mature Christians, they must be known for submitting to the Spirit's leadership in their lives. And third, we also notice that they must be full of wisdom. So they are to be filled with the Spirit and to be filled and increasingly with wisdom. And so anybody who thinks of the office of deacon as though maybe it's a stepping stone in order to become an elder doesn't fully understand this office. This is not a stepping stone Uh, to something else. Uh, This is not unimportant. Uh, This is not unimportant work, though many of the responsibilities that fall on the deacon's plate, maybe to others, would be considered menial. But again, this this is very important. And 
In fact, to, uh, to emphasize, oh, one more thing, too. I'll, I'll just understand also what we see here is labor divided, right? And, and certainly no church can be healthy if any one person tries to do all the work or even a few people try and do all the work. And so by commissioning these deacons, everybody is involved in the work really of making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. And so technically three overarching purposes for deacons or three benefits of having them, I want to give those to you. Number one, they do meet tangible needs. They meet practical and tangible needs. Now, I don't think as we look at Acts 6 that the only ministry that deacons focus on is one of mercy ministry, providing for you know, widows. And I say that because I think that's just an example. Again, when we look at our Bibles, we always need to be asking the question, what is prescriptive versus descriptive? When you're reading a historical narrative such as Acts is, it's describing things that happen. It's not telling you how things ought to be. Into the epistles, that's usually where you get the prescription. You see the commands. This is what you are to do. Right? So I think that as you see an example there, I think uh, we can broaden that out and you can see that deacons can meet all sorts of other practical ministries uh, beyond just caring for widows. Uh, secondly, they also protect and promote church unity. They protect and promote church unity. You know, the, the church has lots of threats on the outside of it, but again, when you have disunity, it is a threat from the inside, and if not addressed, disunity can serve as a cancer that eventually uh, works its way through the whole church and leads the church to uh, absolutely uh, separating and splitting and fracturing. Number three, we see the purpose here also of the deacons is that they serve and support the ministry of the elders. So I know that we've gone through a lot today, but I want you to understand this very simple picture. I've, I've said this time and again, but I'm going to give it to you again. If you really wanted to simplify what ministry looks like in the local church, you can think of it this way. Uh, first, the elders, they, they lead ministry. Uh, deacons facilitate ministry, but the congregation does ministry. And even as we've emphasized the two offices, one for elders and another for deacons, if you wanted to add a third office, it would technically be the office of member. And so what I've just told you reflects this teaching. Elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, and the congregation does ministry. And all we can say as we think about all this is, again, how good is our Savior? That He cares for us so deeply, that He cares for His work so deeply, he cares for the Great Commission so deeply that he has given us clear instructions and a clear blueprint for putting things in order in the local church. And we do well to heed these instructions. And if we are ever to become the kind of church that really glorifies God in the most clear way possible, we will commit ourselves to following through with these instructions. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Mapleton or even in the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.